meeting you. This morning we are going to be considering a portion of scripture from the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. Considering what we'll call this morning a brief meditation. Mindful of those who are with us this morning who aren't typically with us. Also mindful that you've probably already burned through most of the fruit snacks that were there. (laughs) Fathers, I'm looking at you. And so we'll consider this brief portion before us this morning as we continue to worship our Lord. Let's begin reading, if you have your copy of God's Word, and 1 John chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Would you join with me in praying as we ask the Lord for his great help as we consider the goodness of his word? Our God and Father, how good it is to gather this morning. Not only that it is the first day of the week, but it is the day that we traditionally set aside to remember the goodness of your provision of your Son for us. Lord, how much we need to be reminded of and to hear not only of your love, but the greatest expression of your love towards sinners and the giving of your Son. So we pray this morning in this simple yet profound message that it would be carried to our ears and most importantly to our hearts and to our minds that we might receive it as it is, as the very word of God. And that receiving it with hearts of meekness that you by your spirit may cause your word to grow up and to bear tremendously good fruit. Not only this morning and in terms of what we are here to do and the plans that we may have for later this afternoon. But Lord, we're thinking more along the lines of for each day that you've given breath to our lungs to live, that they might live in reflection of who you are. And for all eternity, when you will call us home or you shall return for us, Lord, that these truths would shape up the very existence of who we are and the purpose of our lives, we pray. Amen. Well, I'm willing to bet that in recent weeks, many of us have hummed Christmas tunes, uh, driven past front yard nativity scenes that all seek to remind us that Jesus Christ was born in a manger. The Son of God has come in human flesh. And for the past three weeks as a church, we've been taking time to consider this one question. Why? Why has Christ come? Not merely the fact that He has come, not considering the very promises and fulfillment that He has in fact come, but asking this one very simple question. Why has Christ come? And the answer to that question leads us to the discovery and hopefully the consideration of the greatest news that human history has ever heard. 
We've answered that question over the past three weeks by saying, well, Christ has come to take away sins. 1 John 3.5 Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 Christ has come because the Father loves us. 1 John 4.9 And this morning I want to briefly turn our attention to this wonderfully simple yet profound statement that we might meditate upon the good news, Christ has come to save. In short, the message of the Scripture is that the world that we live in, that you and I inhabit, it cannot save itself. But, God has taken it upon Himself to send His Son to be the Savior. And that is the good news that we consider. So let's do it this morning just briefly by considering two questions. We'll ask two questions and do our best to answer them. What kind of help do we need? And what kind of hope do we have? If humanity is incapable of saving itself, and yet the good news is that God has seen fit to save His people, what kind of help do we specifically need? And what kind of hope do we have? The help that I'm considering is found in verse 14. Where John says, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Now as we all reflect back on the events, the various headlines, circumstances of this past year, even some of the very circumstances of our own families and homes, it is clear that the world that we live in needs help. I don't think there is one person that has ever walked this planet that has not at some point said to themselves, things are not the way they ought to be. And if you have ever said that, you would be in perfect harmony with what the scriptures teach. We need help. You are in fact right, things are not at all the way that they ought to be. We need a help that comes to us, not from within us. That's the first observation we could make in just considering what John says. The sort of help that we need, well, it's the sort of help that comes to us rather than rising up from within us. Notice that John says the Father sent the Son into this world. Creator comes into creation. An outsider comes among us. Now, the real problem of sin one of the effects of sin is that we are curved inwards. Meaning that our very disposition by nature is that we are prone to look within ourselves to solve the problems that we face. We are curved inwards believing that the answer to this great problem must lie within us. Now the confusion is that there are certain problems where we can find solutions by looking around to one another or looking to ourselves and the very information that we have memorized or studied. I guarantee every kid in this room above, say, fourth grade has turned to mom or dad, an older brother or sister, and said, how do you do long division? (laughs) And hopefully you found an answer. Hopefully you found the help that you were looking for. Some of the men in this room have fixed many a broken dryer or HVAC or carburetor by turning to YouTube and hacking their way to victory and finding, hopefully, 
the answers that they were looking for. And to be sure, humanity has solved and resolved a staggering amount of problems. The pulley, the lever, the fulcrum, all help us move objects much greater than our physical strength could ever produce. Calculus and and complex mathematical formulas help us to defy gravity and to actually place human beings on the moon. We have found ways to overcome obstacle after obstacle to resolve problem that would seem to be unsolvable, but there is a certain problem that cannot be solved by knowledge or applied physics or complex equations. And the fact that John tells us that the Father sent His Son into this world is our clue that this problem before us is beyond what we could ever resolve. The help we need is greater than what we can provide with the simple reason is that we are the problem. We are prone to look within for answers, and yet the teaching of Christ is so clear in our natural state. The only things that come from within us are evil. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Therefore, the salvation must come from outside of us. Hope of true and lasting salvation must come from somewhere other than us. This is why the scriptures teach that someone else from somewhere else outside of us had to become our Savior because right now, here in this place, we are too sinful, too embattled to bring any sort of lasting salvation among ourselves. The angel's announcement rings true. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. R.C. Sproul has written a wonderfully helpful little book called Saved from What? And over the course of 123 pages... Sproul answers the question by exposing the real problem that every single one of us must wrestle with at some point. What he says essentially is that the core of the biblical message is the announcement is that salvation is of the Lord and from the Lord. And what he means by that is that it's of the Lord and that the Lord sends the salvation. But it's also a salvation from the Lord in the sense that ultimately what you and I need to be saved from is God. What you and I need to be saved from is not simply the guilt that we feel, but the judgment that we deserve. But the glory of the gospel is this, that the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We need a help from the outside. But we also need a help that's sufficiently qualified. It's helpful to see when John says, and he uses this phrase in verse 14, to be the Savior of the world. It's not essentially a description, but more or less a title. 
Here's what I mean. Within classical writing, and to Roman or to Greek ears, this title, Savior, typically, usually, contextually applied to various gods, but specifically to Zeus. At Greek or Roman banquets, it would be custom to raise a glass, and before you drink, to proclaim to Zeus, our Savior. It's no wonder, then, that the New Testament has this repeated emphasis upon proclaiming Christ, our Savior. Luke 2.11, perhaps a portion some of you read this morning, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Acts 5.31, God exalted Him, Christ, at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. 2 Timothy 1.10, into which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Or the comforting words of Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior who is Christ the Lord. My point is to say that Christ is the Savior of the world is not a teaching that all the world will be saved, but to the extent of the salvation that he brings. It will be global rather than isolated to some particular region or race. Christ has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, and the curse of sin is felt upon every continent of this world. That's why there's such joy in heaven when John sees the praises of the Lamb of God sung by a multitude of people. Revelation 7, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In our sinful rebellion, humanity has ensured that the curse of sin would be felt throughout the whole world. But God, in His wonderful grace, has sent the Son to be the Savior of this world. This is precisely the help that we need. But that's not only the help that we need, John would remind us of the hope that we have. Look back at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. What kind of hope do we have? The scriptures would want us to see, first of all, that we have hope in a person. This is so extremely important. The statement Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God is the sort of statement that qualifies the hope that John is speaking of. For it's only those and to those who confess that Jesus is who he says he is and did what the scriptures proclaim him to have done shall be saved. It's only those. It's a limiting statement regarding Christ and our understanding of who he is. Now, to be sure, this confession of Jesus Christ as Lord is more than just intellectual agreement that Jesus was a historical person or that this Bible is a holy book 
what John has in mind is our agreement with the scriptures as to what it says about Christ. This is not my own idea of salvation. This is not my own fashioned idea of how I can be saved or how this will all work out in the end or who it is that goes to heaven. It has nothing to do with our opinions. It has everything to do with the revelation of what Scripture says who Jesus is. And what John connects here in these brief statements is the evidence of whether you abide in God and He in you is how you respond to the Scripture's testimony of who Jesus is. Ultimately, who you affirm Jesus to be is a reflection of your view of humanity. More specifically, yourself. Or to put it this way, whether you realize it or not, who you say Jesus is exposes the connection between your anthropology and your Christology. Who is man has a whole lot to do with who you say Christ is. And if your understanding of who man is is disjointed and contorted from what Scripture says, then it's no surprise that your idea of who God is and who His Son is will also be disjointed and contorted. Christians place their hope in Jesus, the Son of God, because He has come to bridge the distance between man and God. He has come to remove the barriers between God and men, meeting the very certain conditions of the law and restoring man unto God. So then to confess, as John says, Jesus is the Son of God, is to confess that Jesus is the fulfillment of what we need. Fulfilling those roles as our high priest, our true prophet, our true king. To confess that Jesus is the Son of God is to say, He is the substance of what I need. I must have Him. His death was for my sin. His resurrection was for my life. And at the core, Christianity, and more specifically, the good news of Christmas is hope in a person, not sentimentality, not chord progressions and lyrics that make us long for a better time. The hope of Christmas is a person, and this person is the Lord Jesus Christ, whom has been sent by the Father. This hope belongs to those who agree with God. They agree with all that the Scriptures proclaim Him to be, And they agree with all that the scriptures proclaim you to be. We have hope in a person. But what John also says, lastly, is we have hope in God himself. What he says at the end of verse 15, God abides in him and he in God. Have you ever thought of salvation in this way? To abide in God. And he and you. Certainly we would all agree salvation means we are saved from something. But the scriptures would also emphasize that we are saved into something or someone. Abiding relationship with God and God with us. This is really the tension of the plot line of all of scripture. Remember when we said when we walk around and we say things are not the way they ought to be. 
what that is is that wound that never really heals, that recognizes the opening pages of Scripture that says man was made to dwell with God in unbroken, perfect communion, and yet Adam, being the representative of all humanity, forfeited this honor and chose instead to gratify his own desires and trust his own wisdom rather than God's. And as a result, he was thrust out of God's presence, separated from the dwelling place of God, and bringing upon the curse of sin upon all of humanity. Now what's interesting is what we find in the rest of the pages of our Bibles. The rest of our pages of our Bibles, as they unfold, they unfold that this wonderful hope that is proclaimed is that God still wants to dwell with His people. In spite of their sin, in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their hard-headedness to trust in their own wisdom, to give in to their own desires rather than the desires that God says, this is good. God still wants to dwell with His people and He does not cast them aside. And God ensures that this will happen by sending His own Son to be the Savior so that His people then might dwell with God. So to be a Christian means not only that we've come to trust in God, but that we dwell with God and He with us, united to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The night before Christ was crucified, He spent time in prayer, pouring out His heart to the Father. The the very heart of that prayer was this same desire that His people would dwell with Him where He is going, and that God would dwell with them, just as the Son enjoys this communion with the Father. And when we come to the end of the story, as Christ returns and establishes His kingdom, and death and sin are no more, what do we hear? In Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, And God Himself will be with them as their God. To say that the Father has sent the Son to be our Savior is the declaration not only that we are saved by God, saved from God, but that we are saved unto God to be united with Him. So let me remind us by asking this one simple question again. Why? Why has Christ come? Or more accurately, why did the Father send the Son for His people? The answer is that the Father sent His Son to make Himself known. Not that we would just have an information download of facts and interesting tidbits about this God, but that the love of the Father that is eternally given to the Son might be given to those who are in Him to His people, that we might enjoy the Son as the Father enjoys the Son. That is the very reason that the Father sent Him. Ultimately, the Father sent the Son because the Father loved the Son and wanted to share that love with His people. God in us, and us in God. His love for the world is the overflow of His mighty love for His Son. So what we're saying is this. The message 
of the gospel is that the world is incapable of saving itself, but God loves the world to such a degree that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And this life is not just an enhanced version of what you know now. This life is to know God as he is and to be at peace before him and to be at rest that he is sufficiently for you. The wonder of the gospel is not only that God became man, as wonderful as that is. The glory of the gospel is that he did so in order to dwell with sinful people by taking our sin, by giving us his righteousness. And because, church, because he has accomplished that for his people upon the cross, that means that you and I can enjoy this sort of relationship this morning. This is not some distant fairy story that maybe one day you'll get to know this. This is the promise that's given to his people now. That's why during this season it's very typical for us to say Christ has come and he's coming again. Because between those two bookends stands the goodness of the gospel and the hope of God's people. Christ has come and he's coming again. This means then that salvation is so much more than just Fixing all of our problems or excusing all of your offenses. Well, it certainly includes that. It is ultimately reconciling us to God that we might dwell with Him. Christ has come to take away sins, Christ has come to destroy the work of the devil, Christ has come because the Father loves us. And Christ has come to save. Church, this is why we are gathered this Christmas day and every Lord's Day. Because God has done something. He's done something that we don't deserve. And he's accomplished it soundly and securely that his people might rest in him. Would you join with me in prayer? Giving thanks to God for this great news. Our God and Father, we look to you this morning and such grateful response to everything that we hear, everything that has been laid out so plainly and clearly in your scriptures. We rejoice to know that you have sent your Son, not merely as a point in history, but it is a a declaration of doctrine, that you have sent your Son for a purpose, that you've sent your Son to save. Lord, we ask and we pray that you would help us to find great rest in this true promise. The sort of rest that comes only by knowing that you have accomplished, that you have finished, and that you have resolved the greatest problem that we could ever know or face. And if you have dealt with the greatest thing that could ever harm us, if you have satisfied the greatest hunger that we could never have found, and that you have done it in yourself, Lord, we say, what more shall we have to fear? What more shall we have to be concerned over? And that you have taken the greatest thing, against us, and you have brought peace. You have filled us with hope, and that you've poured out your love in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Lord, continue to cause us to be those who not only rejoice in what you have done, but rest in this good news as well, we pray.